One thing about the uh, Christian life that has always puzzled me is this. Why is it that over time, some Christians become really sweeter? And over time, some Christians become, well, non-sweet, sour, <laughs> whatever that is. Have you ever wondered that? Yeah. So let's, let's think, you know, imagine you have two Christians. They may... They both go to church, so they both attend worship services. They might even be ha on the same Bible reading plan, okay? But over time, the one, and, and you know, everybody has flaws, but this one becomes more humble, uh, more sacrificial, and just more delightfully human. And the other one becomes more rigid, uh, judgmental, maybe even more religious, but somehow less human, if that makes sense. So what I want you to do is I want you to think of a person who exemplifies that sweeter person, who over their Christian life has really just become more accepting, uh, more genuine. Uh, here's some other clues. You feel at peace when you're around them. And, and they have flaws, they know it and you do, but that's not actually what you notice most when you're in their presence. What you notice is things like they don't over-spiritualize, they don't use a ton of religious language, they don't deny pain, they just seem centered. As if the pain of the world does not pull them under. Or as if they knew they were loved and they're able to love you as well. So who, who is someone like that for you? I hope you have been blessed with several people, but think of one. And now I want you to think of the opposite, somebody who's a longtime Christian, but honestly, you'd have to say, and I want to be charitable, they're just not getting better. <laughs> um, they're kind of uptight, maybe, or maybe their thing is to be argumentative. Um, they seem to major on minor stuff. And you can't help feeling when you're around them, they might they're kind of judging you. They may even have an encyclopedic knowledge of all things Bible. And they have the answers, but if you were asked to go on a car trip with them, you'd go, no, I can't make it. <laughs> well, if you, if you, who, who is that person for you? Well, if you don't know any, I think I can find you a few on Facebook, but... <laughs> but could there be friends? A more important question for you and for me as followers of Jesus Christ, how do we make sure we are heading toward becoming the one and not the other? What does it take for you and me to actually become closer to God, to, be, to look more like him, to become more like him and not, dear God, please, think we're doing that and actually become some kind of like cardboard cutout version Well, Jesus knew this question matters deeply. He taught on it in a number of ways, and he embedded the answer in the longest story he ever told. It's also the most popular story he ever told. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. Now, singular, as if there's one son, but Jesus starts his story like this. There was once a man who had two sons. 
Now, if this were the first time you were hearing it and you just heard that is the opener, there was once a man who had two sons, what do you know already? Well, you go, okay, there's two sons, so there's probably going to be some compare and contrast. That's what I'm expecting to happen. And sure enough, it's sort of like the movie A River Runs Through It, which I think came after Jesus' parable, so may have <laughs> part. But you have this wild, addicted son who's kind of out of control. Uh, and then you have the responsible son who does what he's supposed to do. And that's what happens in this story. The younger says to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. So it all starts that day when the younger son says to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. Now, this is a move that the older son is never going to make. But partly because of something called primogeniture. Primogeniture. This is the practice in many societies over many years. In fact, it was done in feudal Europe, where the biggest chunk of an inheritance goes to the oldest eligible child, usually the oldest son. And so, for example, you might be reading along in Deuteronomy one day, and you would come to a verse like this. Quote, he must recognize the full rights of the oldest son. He must give that son a double share of everything he has. Now, this practice bothers us, doesn't it? I mean, it is utterly unfair. This kid, just by accident of birth, order, gets double. Okay. But the reason we view it that way is because we don't live in an agricultural world. If we did, it would make total sense, and here's why. So in a world of farming, almost all of your wealth is tied up in what? Yeah, there's equipment, there's animals, but ultimately the land. The equipment and animals are worthless without the land. So just about all your wealth is in the farmland. And now let's say that you have four sons. And so you go about the, the will the way you and I would write the will for our children, and you divide it absolutely as equally as you can possibly make it, and everybody gets one-fourth of that farm. Well, now what you've done is you've created four farmettes, none of which is big enough to actually work as a money-making, surviving farm. And then and you do that again in the next generation, and now everybody's down to one-sixteenth postage stamp size. That ruins everybody's prospects. And so, instead of doing that, they, they practice what we know as primogeniture. So, everybody listening to Jesus knows that in this story, the older son's going to get two-thirds, and the younger son's going to get a third. Now, that two-thirds is still enough to work as a farm, but usually what happens is this. The older son then buys out the younger son's land, keeping all the land in its fullness, and the younger son leaves with cash and goes off and does another career other than farming. Okay, so the story is not just two sons, but two sons where one of them gets so much more. And to get that, he has to stay. His inheritance is in the ground he's standing on. 
All right. So now his younger brother does not have that same tie. And he's impatient. So he says, Father, I want right now what's coming to me, which essentially translates to, Dad, I really wish you were dead now because I want your money now. Now this is ridiculously offensive in our day and age, but think about it in an honor-shame culture where you honor your elders. This is about the most unthinkable, unforgivable thing a person could ever do. This is the most ungrateful, narcissistic excuse of a son a father has ever had. But the father goes ahead. And things don't work out very well for this young man. After he'd gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to feel it. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs out of the pig slop, but no one would give him any. And then the light bulb goes on. This younger son is not very good with money, but he's picked up a few street smarts along the way, and he realizes... I need a job. I need to eat. I got to do something. Who would even give me a, like a decent enough job where I would eat? And so he packs up and he, and he says, I'm going back. I'm going to say to my father, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. I need the job. He got right up and went home to his father. Now notice why he returns. It's not because... I love dad. Dad's so awesome. I just want to be near dad. He needs, he needs to eat. He's, lost, he's run out of all his favors. There's nobody else he can call. Nobody's answering his calls or texts. And so, but here's what he does well. He does well what in AA language they call making amends. And he meets his dad and he tells him, you know what, dad, straight up, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I, I've really blown it. I do not deserve to be your son, but I do need a job. And to the son's astonishment and to the astonishment of everyone hearing this for the first time and to the astonishment of us, the dad takes him in. And since his boy is now barefoot and in rags, he calls to the servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him, put the family ring on his finger, giving him back dignity, sandals on his feet, then get a prize-winning heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here. He was given up for dead, and now he's alive. He was given up for lost, and now he's found. Now, often, the way this story gets told in sermons, and I have preached some of these um, myself, is it stops right about here. The wayward son, the rebel, comes back home, and the dad runs out to meet him and takes him back and celebrates. And the point is, God is like the father who welcomes home all who repent. It's all who wreck their lives. It's a story of a wayward kid and a forgiving dad, and that is totally true. Bless the Lord. But remember, this is a man who has two sons. Okay. It turns out there are two prodigal sons in this story. And we don't get the full story until we also see what happens to what I call the forgotten prodigal son, the older son. Now, the older son, who's working away on his father's farm, comes in from the fields to find out that his no-good brother has slunk home, 
And instead of being shamed, which he should be, is now being honored. New clothes, family ring, music, dancing, barbecue beef. That's insane. And his head explodes. And he, and he stomps off in an angry sulk and refuses to go in. And his father comes out and tries to talk to him, but he won't listen. The son says, look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief, but have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours, who has thrown away your money on whores, shows up and you just go all out with a feast. He is angry and he's accusing. He's like, Dad, you are so unfair. I've been good to you and you have not been good to me. I've been a better son to you, and you're being a better dad to him. And then the sandal drops, and we realize there's more than one way you can leave the father's house. The younger son leaves his dad by going absent, and the older son leaves him by going off angry. The younger son won't stay on the property, and the older one won't go to the party. The younger son demanded what was coming to him in the will, and the older son demands what he thinks he's owed for being so good. The younger son left his father by living a dissipated life, and the older son has left his father by living a dutiful life. Dutiful, but not delighting. He's not delighting in the father who's there with him every day. And so now... Who's in the father's house enjoying his company? Well, the ungrateful, narcissistic wastrel who repented, who realized, Dad, you don't owe me anything. I just need a job. And who's standing outside in the heat? Angry, bitter, the one who's always been responsible and thinks his dad really owes him a lot. So let's freeze frame right now. The younger son is at a party helping himself to a second slice of prime rib and a very nice cup of wine. And the older son is standing outside, angry, arms crossed, back to his dad. And so now we're finally ready to answer our opening question. How do you and I live our life so we end up inside the father's house, feasting on forgiveness, rejoicing, to receive his honor, to cover our shame and delighting in all the good things the Father has for us. And please, God, somehow not miss out on that and end up standing outside a little put out, even though we know everything about the Father, but we're no longer even listening to him. Now, this is a question that is important, I think. I'll start with me. If I were going to go out one way or the other, the younger son's chosen way or the older son's chosen way, I am, more I am not highly likely to leave the father's house by wild party, just by temperament. Okay. I don't think less of you if that's your chosen way, but that was, it's not the way, just kind of who I'm wired to be. And we would have to say, would we not, that Wheaton, Illinois 60187 tends to attract a whole lot of people who are nothing if not responsible. <laughs> so what does the father say to his older son how's he try to get him to come back into the party because the father's not happy till everybody's in the house he wants the entire family to show up he says son you don't understand 
You're with me all the time, and everything that's mine is yours. You're with me all the time. Every day, you get to be with me. We can talk. We can enjoy each other's company. I'm here with you. I'm always accessible to you. And everything that is mine is yours. Now, this is legally true. Everything on this farm belongs to the older son because as soon as dad dies, the will makes it his. But it's before that even becomes legally true, it's functionally true. All the equipment, the farmhands, the animals, the land, the grain, everything that this young man is enjoying is really his now. He's living here. He's staying in the house. He's eating from the land. Everything the father has belongs to this kid. And we get a picture that it is totally possible to somehow be near the Father, dutifully serving Him, responsibly, but not delighting in Him. Serving, but not satisfied. So the invitation that the Father gives to the older son and the invitation to us, if you happen to be responsibly serving God the Father, is to come on inside. Sit down at the table. Feast. Enjoy my company. Find satisfaction in me. The late, great Dallas Willard describes satisfaction in God this way. He says, your cup is running over because you are well cared for by God. What a sweet place to be. Your cup is running over because you're well cared for by God. And he goes on to say, there's no substitute for simple satisfaction in the word of God and in the presence of God. God's saying, come on in. You're right here with me. I'm, I'm accessible to you, and I, everything I have is yours. The power of the Holy Spirit, righteousness, peace, and joy in the kingdom of God, uh, intimacy and in prayer, uh, all these kinds of things become yours because I give them to you. I will them to you. Now, Willard, in the article that I just quoted, he gave three little, not little, three indicator lights on a dashboard, as it were, that would indicate when we're drifting away from our satisfaction in God. I found them insightful. So here you go. Uh, the first one is overexertion and no peace about your work. And then, which I, I would not have listed myself. I didn't know where he was going, but he gave an example to preachers, four preachers, which I did happen to get. He's, and you'll have to translate this to the various ways you serve the Father. He says, preachers who are not finding satisfaction in Christ are likely to demonstrate that with overexertion and overpreparation for speaking and with no peace about what they do after they do it. If we have not come to the place of resting in God, we will go back and think, oh, if I'd done this or I didn't do that. Anybody who's preached, <laughs> you know. Yeah, felt that. But, he says, once you turn it loose, and recognize we're always inadequate, but inadequacy is not the issue. You're able to lay that burden down. When you come to the place where you are drinking deeply from God and trusting him to act with you, there's peace about what you have communicated. You guys see, it's not all up to me. It's not all up to the, the person who's doing this work, whatever the work is that you're thinking of. 
All right, so that's, a, that's an indicator light that we might pick up. Overexertion and no peace about our work. Second is feeling more tempted than usual. Willard says, those who experience moral failure are those who failed to live a deeply satisfied life in Christ, almost without exception. And he, he says it of himself. I know my temptations come out of situations where I am dissatisfied, not content. I'm worried about something. I'm not feeling the sufficiency I know is there. And I begin to feel I deserve something better. I sacrifice so much and get so little. And so I'll do this. The surest guarantee against failure, he says, is to be so at peace and satisfied with God that when wrongdoing presents itself, it isn't even interesting. That's how we stay out of temptation. All right, a third indicator that Willard gives us is and we struggle to really listen to people. We struggle to really listen. Satisfied Christians, Willard says, can listen. Quote, they can be silent in the presence of others because they're not always trying to make something happen. Isn't that beautiful? That's why you feel at peace around somebody like that. Because they're not trying to make something happen. They're not trying to make use into something. They're just able to be quiet and receptive. It's one of the greatest gifts you can give another human being is to bring a satisfied soul near to them and they'll leave refreshed. It's beautiful. And so God is just inviting us. He's a father who wants everybody at the feast. If you're wild, come on into the feast. If you're more responsible and a straight arrow, come on into the feast. If you're serving him, he says, everything I have, it's yours. So how do we, how do, we do this? How do, how do we satisfy our souls in God? One last quote from Willard. He says, he encourages Christians to have substantial times every week when they do nothing but enjoy God. That may mean walking by a stream, looking at a flower, listening to music, or watching your children or grandchildren play without your constantly trying to control them. Experience the fullness of God. Think about the good things God has done for you and realize he has done well by you. And here he gets like, kind of like a spiritual director. If there's a problem doing that, namely realizing that God has done well by you, then work through the problem because we cannot really serve him if we do not genuinely love him. Or he says, take an hour. And I know that would be generous for some of you given your demands. Maybe it's a half an hour. Sit in a comfortable place in silence and do nothing but rest. If you go to sleep, that's okay. He says, we have to stop trying too hard. There's a place for effort, but it never earns anything and must never take the place of God with us. The father does not dishonor or disrespect the older son's dutiful, faithful service to him in the farm. He loves him for that. But what he really wants is his fellowship. He really wants him to just come into the feast and have fun. He wants him to enjoy himself. And so Jesus' story stops right here. But it doesn't end. He leaves the story open-ended. The older son is standing outside with his back to his dad, and his dad is saying to him, Son, everything that's mine is yours. Won't you come on into the party? I wonder what he'll do. Amen.